So, last night we established the, the groundwork for thinking about how you and I engage this thing that we participate in on a Sunday morning called the Liturgy for Holy Communion and just liturgical worship in general. We looked at Cranmer's preface and then we looked at the Collect for Purity and in a sense exegeted that the main agenda of what's going on when we worship together is, we'll say it this way, unleashing the Word of God to do its work on us. And chiefly that, that Word that has been working on us all week out there and through the Scriptures has a goal for you and me, which I haven't used this language yet, but is to drive you and I to perpetual, ongoing, cyclical repentance. And that repentance is the process of this open heart surgery, of opening up and showing us our need for Jesus, exposing that, that heart that really needs perpetual change and is always changing, and then giving us that good news, that, that Jesus of the gospel, and that that gospel is the change agent in our lives. We ask the question, what actually changes people into the image and likeness of Jesus? And we answer that question saying, it is actually the good news. Now, I want to talk about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And I want to begin by offering you a metaphor that I think opens up what justification is, because it's sometimes maybe convoluted in the history of the church how to understand this. And even in our present moment, I'd say, if you're aware of the way that scholars and educated Christians talk about justification by faith alone, it's a little bit cast in, in a light of suspicion nowadays, like we're sort of past talking about it as something important. And I want to reinvigorate why, according to the scriptures, justification is really important. And so I'm going to use a metaphor that's a bit uh, uncouth, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm just going to say it. When COVID happened, I developed a hobby and that hobby was becoming kind of an amateur cocktail maker. I just started enjoying making cocktails. Something that has emerged that actually dates back to the 1700s, an English woman kind of invented this practice, uh, is the process of clarifying cocktails. Have anybody ever heard of clarified cocktails or anything? It's this strange process that one would think would be so odd and not work, but the goal is you build a cocktail with all its ingredients together, and then you pour whole milk into it, or pour it into whole milk. And the milk curdles up all the impurities that are in the cocktail. You strain out through some mesh filters. It sounds gross, right? You strain out some mesh filters. And what comes of the remaining liquid through multiple processes of this, this clarification is a more beautiful, um, more clear, and more pure cocktail to taste. And the idea is that this, this milk acts as like a filter to pull out all the impurities and create the ideal flavor profile that's really in there. And so oftentimes, cocktails that were once colored now are clear liquid. And so you have a margarita that looks like water, but tastes like a margarita. And its mouthfeel is different. And its uh, flavor is kind of amplified. And so it's all the rage amongst boutique cocktail makers and bars right now. Actually, the process of clarification and the, the ingredient of milk in particular is what I will describe to you as what justification is for the gospel. Justification is that filtering agent that lets us know that we're hearing the gospel clearly. And what we said before is that if the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is what changes you, there are many things that could cloud your ability to hear it. And justification is an agent that helps us to know clearly whether we're hearing, tasting, feeling, knowing that the gospel's coming at us. And again, if that's the change agent, I want to know when I'm hearing the good news and, and how it's hitting me. And justification is that kind of um, ingredient, you could say, that helps clarify the gospel for me. So if you turn to a place like Romans 3, verse 21, I want to listen clearly to how Paul describes justification. Now again, it's a little bit tricky in English because we have two words for one word in the original language. Our two words are because in the original language, to justify and justification... Um, 
are all, whether verb or noun, one, one word, and the word in, in Greek is called dikaiosune. But in English, we often translate the noun as righteousness and the verb as justify. And those ta- sound to our ears like two different words, but they're one word in the original language. And that may be a little helpful when we hear a passage like this. When Paul has gone through great lengths to talk about the nature that all of us are under sin and what he would describe as under the wrath of God. All of us are broken and sinful. And then he has this kind of electric statement when he begins in in verse 21 of chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's the diagnosis. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Going back to verse 21 now. But now, apart from the law, a righteousness of God, a justification from God. So here I'd like to just sort of tell you what justification is. Justification is God's declaration right now of what he will say to you when you approach him at the pearly gates. Whatever that verdict is that he's going to declare on the basis of the righteousness that surrounds your life, Paul is announcing that word that you're going to hear in the future, uh, your future final judgment, has been rendered and I declare to you now. And the shocking thing is, it is being declared to you apart from your works, by grace through faith alone in Jesus. What he's basically saying is that when I declare to you your justification in God, what I'm saying to you is that your future final verdict on the basis of your life is rendered to you now on the basis of Christ's life. So when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished, what was finished? Your final judgment was finished. You have been justified before God such that you as a Christian can stand secure that When you approach God on that final day, whenever you die, God will say, because of your justification in Jesus, well done, good and faithful servant. Your judgment has been rendered, it is done, and there's nothing that you can do that would jeopardize that final verdict. That's the kind of shock of what Paul is saying now, is all the worries you have about what may happen when you stand before God have been settled in the person and work of Jesus. And... Now I want you to pay attention to the way justification works as a filter. Because notice what Paul is saying. This verdict is precisely so at the point of everything that's apart from the law. So what he's saying is there's a a stark separation I want you to get through your mind. That your justification happens apart from the law and apart from your works. Meaning everything you do that you think makes God wants to love you and say, well done, is not included in what justifies you before God. It is excluded. Are you hearing some of the filtering? What justifies you before God? There's a filter that occurs, and that filter says, not anything that you do. All those things are filtered out from what makes God pleased with you, accept you, and declare to you, I love you. God says, I love you on the basis of Christ on the basis of who he is. So all those works are excluded. Justification tells us that when when we're hearing the gospel, we are hearing a naked promise that has no strings attached to it, that says, I love you apart from anything that you've done and apart from anything that you would give that would say, this makes me worthy of your love. Basically, justification is telling us those things are off the table for why God loves us. And God loves us simply, apart from those things, because he loves us. And as God says, I love you, and I promise that I love you in Christ, and that's all, in a sense, that it takes, faith is believing that that's true. Faith is simply going, that's the way things really are. And I'm trusting that the God who promises that that that's what it is in Jesus, that that God is actually true and not a liar, So when he's making this promise that I love you in Christ, apart from your works, that's actually true. Faith is just believing that God's promises are true. 
So I want to take that, for instance, and maybe come at this a different way to think about this. And this relates to liturgy. There are all these metaphors, and here are just a few in Scripture, of how salvation works. And part of the reason justification has kind of fallen into disrepute as of late is people say, in the Apostle Paul, for instance, in all these letters that we have that describe salvation, it uses a ton of metaphors other than just justification, which is kind of like courtroom language. We've got atonement. We've got adoption, which is family language. We've got reconciliation, which is alienated parties coming together as a result of reunion. We've got union in the sense of being united to God. We've got redemption in the sense of being purchased out of slavery. We've got liberation in the sense of having been pulled out of oppressive forces that have shackled us and now we're free. All those metaphors are present in salvation. What in the world gives justification the right to be talked about or emphasized a little bit more than those. We need to get back to thinking about all those holistically. And so, um, in yesteryear, some have pegged the Reformation as overly emphasizing justification as kind of a center spoke on a wheel of other metaphors. And they've kind of said, that's, that's not right, because when you listen to the Apostle Paul talk about these things, it's more like this. Justification is one of many of these, uh, these metaphors for the way salvation works. I don't think it's best to talk about justification, and I kind of agree with the folks who say we've unduly placed justification at the center of the way salvation works. But there may be a different way that doesn't fully go here nor here that helps us to understand what justification is, and this gets to some of the clarified cocktail kind of observations here. What we might want to say differently is that the good news of Jesus Christ is at the center of what it means to be a changed person. The good news is that gospel is. What justification, according to this passage, tells us is it sort of functions not as the center, but as we might say, a kind of guardian or filtering agent that helps me to know what is the gospel, which is sort of what we're describing as inside this sphere, and what is not the gospel outside the sphere. In the sense of, how do I know when I'm hearing the gospel clearly? Justification is that filtering agent that helps me to separate and understand what is the gospel and what is not the gospel. It is a basis and a boundary, or a grammar for the way that salvation speech works, to help me to understand what is or is not the gospel. To make this a little more concrete, again, we heard from the scriptures that justification is particularly the declaration that you are righteous apart from your works. It filters out all works, which means that if I'm hearing something that is declaring the gospel or declaring good news to me, but somehow commingles my participation in the reception of that good news or commingles the idea that somehow I'm earning or my works are participating in what gives me good news. I'm not hearing the gospel according to justification. Let's make it concrete in a statement. God forgives you and loves you in Christ. That's the gospel. When I'm telling you that, I'm giving you good news that actually goes, oh, I can believe that, seize upon that, and that is a promise that God gives to me. God forgives and loves you in Christ if you love him and love others. That is not the gospel. And the question is, how do I know that that's not the gospel? Justification tells me that that's not the gospel. Why? Because justification has outlined that God loves me apart from my works. My works don't factor into God's finished and final love for me. So justification is a clarifying agent to help me know that I am hearing the gospel. And it clarifies precisely just like as milk curdles all those impurities and grabs it to itself. So justification grabs everything that's related to my work earning my righteousness and pleasure of God out of the equation so that all that is left is the pure gold of God's love for me in Christ, apart from myself, but wholly in Christ You see how justification, we might not say that justification is the gospel itself, but it is, in a sense, a filter 
so that I know I'm hearing the gospel clearly? The good news is that God loves you and forgives you in Christ. But how do I know I'm hearing it? I'm hearing it because justification tells me it filters out everything work-based. You could see how if a preacher were preaching to you, or if you were reading a book, and you were hearing about God's love for you, with a tacked-on conditional phrase like, if you do something, something, or something. How that suddenly would not sound like good news, right? Because all of a sudden you're like, okay, well, if God loves me based on if I do this, this, or this, I'll, I'll attempt to do that. But eventually over time, if you've heard versions of encouraging you to be that way as a Christian, there have probably come times where you've recognized, I haven't really been able to do this to the degree that I'd like. I haven't been able to um, achieve this the way I'd want to. Maybe for a season, guilt has led you to be able to accomplish loving God and loving others perfectly for a week. But week two, I kind of got a little lazy. And all of a sudden, what sneaks into that paradigm is a suspicion that God might not love me. Why? Because there's a condition put on his love for me. And what justification does is says, there are no conditions apart from the conditions of what God has done for you in Christ. All the conditions of your own works and your own worth are set aside from what give you Jesus. Justification is a filter. So, for instance, if I am listening to um, all these different metaphors, there is a way that I could declare to you the gospel through the metaphor of liberation. There's a way I could declare to you the gospel through the metaphor of adoption. But there's also a way that I could declare those doctrines or those um, metaphors for salvation in a way that actually doesn't give you the gospel. And how do I know? What is the thing that helps me know whether or not, as I'm telling you about your union in Christ, or telling you about your adoption to sonship in God, or telling you that your sins have been atoned for, or telling you that you've been reconciled to God, how do I know that as I'm telling you those things, I'm hearing the gospel or I'm hearing something that is not the gospel? Justification is what tells me that. So this is a way of thinking about all these different metaphors that we hear in Scripture and one good example is this. Say we're talking about those passages like in Galatians or in Romans 8 where we're hearing about our adoption to sonship by the Spirit. How do I know that as Zach is talking about adoption, I am hearing good news versus I'm not hearing good news? Justification tells me that. So, for instance, we could say, if I'm declaring the gospel to you through the metaphor of adoption, what I would say to you is this. God loves you and has adopted you and chosen you to be in his family because of Jesus, period. I have just heard or declared to you the gospel through the metaphor of adoption. That's the good news. Outside of that, I could talk to you about the doctrine of adoption in a way that doesn't sound like the gospel. I could say, God loves you and has chosen you because he sees something good and desirable about your behavior as his child. Do you hear how experientially, if I'm telling you God's adopted you into his family because he saw something good and desirable from you, that if you took enough inventory of your life, you'd start to question whether that's good news? Do you hear how you could perceive that that might not be good news? Because you're like, well... Maybe I'm good and desirable, but I wonder if he remembers that one time. I wonder if he uh, is aware of the way that I really haven't been behaving like a good child would. And that may cause you to question, should I, you know, is God's adoption of me secure? And what we've just sort of gone through is realize, in realizing that that's not the gospel is, how do I know that God has adopted you because you're, more, you're better and more desirable than others out there. How do I know that I've not heard the gospel in that statement? Justification as a filter tells me I've, I've not heard the statement correctly because all those additives, you're more good and more desirable, are in the category of things that you would do 
that would make God more pleased with you. And the doctrine of justification, according to a place like Romans 3 says, it's precisely apart from those things that makes God love you. So justification, again, is a kind of filter and a clarifying agent. Now here's where it comes to liturgy. Whether or not Thomas Cranmer would have articulated all that in the same way, when he read his scriptures, he so imbibed that understanding of justification that it became a kind of way of operating when it came to liturgical revision. So when he had old liturgies and he was translating into them into English. He wasn't just translating, he was transposing, and the filter through which he drove everything, so it seems, was justification by faith alone. And step back and ask, I'm saying a bunch of technical things, but step back and ask the big question of why he would do that. Again, he's interested in what we're interested, changed lives, right? He's convinced, as we tried to talk about last night, as changed lives happen through the gospel. When I hear the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, that's the perpetual changing agent that actually makes me like him. And justification is what makes that gospel clear so that I'm clearly hearing it so that I can be changed. All those things are his agenda. And so Cranmer sets out to start pressing all the old received liturgies through the filter of justification by faith alone, curdling up all its impurities so that on the other side, a pure gospel can be heard. And what I'd say is Cranmer did this in all sorts of ways with worship practice. He did this in thinking through ceremonies and the way priests would do things with certain objects and with their hands and what they're wearing. And he filtered that through justification by faith alone. He did things with liturgical words, as we'll see in a little bit. And he filtered those prayers through justification by faith alone. He did things with the structure of a service. He even recognized, man, the order of events can either give me a sense of the clarity of the gospel or actually make the gospel more opaque. (laughs) And we'll get to that in a little bit. So I want to give you some examples. And I want to start with one of the most obvious places where Cranmer did some really interesting technical editing work. And this uh, will be fascinating. It, it happened in the collects. I don't know how visible this is to you. But in all the collects that are prayed in our worship services, there was a lot of editing done by Cranmer. And I want to show you some of the before and after of these things so that you can see the filtering at work. And what I want you to observe as just an ordinary Christian like me is how if you were to pray this prayer versus this prayer, you'd find the gospel more clear to you, and experientially, if you're praying both of these prayers with sincerity, one of them would lead to greater comfort than the other. (laughs) One of them would lead to a greater sense of, oh, God really loves me and everything's okay, and the other wouldn't. Here's the original prayer that Cranmer was working with. Almighty, and this is the collect for the Sunday next before Easter in the original Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and everlasting God, Our Savior Jesus Christ took upon him our flesh and suffered death upon the cross, that all mankind should follow the example of his humility. Grant that we may both follow the example of his patience and also may merit the partaking of his resurrection through the same Lord. Do you hear? Do you hear how if Cranmer has a fine-tuned filter for justification's understanding of the gospel, there are things that would make him itch, right? Right? Because as we're praying that, we're basically saying, oh God, grant that we might be able to merit the partaking of his resurrection. He's going, "Mm, there's some impurities in there that are making praying this a little bit more difficult and making the gospel a little bit less clear. And again, if the gospel is the change agent, I want that to be clear. So here's what he adds. Here's what he changes. Almighty and everlasting God, then he adds this little section, which of thy tender love toward man. He's just adding that to kind of massage his way into something uh, of a more pure gospel. Has sent our Savior Jesus Christ to take upon him our flesh and to suffer death upon the cross that all mankind should follow the example of his great humility. Not just grant, but mercifully grant because we need mercy. Mercifully grant that we both follow the example of his patience and then here's the curdling. He's grabbing that impurity and pulling it out and be made partakers of his resurrection through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So notice how this filter goes all the way down to the language of prayers. And it's not even enough that we partake his resurrection. He gets, if, if you're sort of into grammar, this is a passive construction. We're made partakers. So even our partaking is not something that is perceived of something that we're doing as much as is being done to us. That's how far the filter goes. And you can see how this collect all of a sudden clarifies how we approach God and who is the giver and who is the receiver in the situation. Cranmer is filtering out our works and making the gospel more pure in the way that we pray this prayer. Here's another example. This is the collect, the second collect for Evensong, which you've probably prayed a lot. Look at the original on the left. <clears throat> o God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto us the same peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts, being obedient to your commandments and fear of our enemies be taken away, our time may be peaceable through thy protection by Christ our Lord. As you're listening to this prayer, are you hearing the way in which a little bit of our works are participating in what makes God do something for us? Are you hearing that? That our hearts, being obedient to your commandments, as a result of that, our time may be peaceable. In a sense of God, because I'm obedient to your commandments, would you give me peace? And Cranmer begins to say, I want something different out of this. So this is a, a primer that Cranmer helped work on previously, but this is the eventual Book of Common Prayer. O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto thy servants that peace which the world cannot give, that both our hearts may be not obedient to thy commandments, but here's the passive language, be set to obey. So suddenly... It's not because of our obedience, but it's because God has made us obedient that these things happen. And that also, by thee, so he's being really explicit that who's doing the action here? By thee, we being defended from the fear of our enemies, just in case there was any ambiguity about how the fear of our enemies are taken away. We are being defended by an outside agent, God, from the fear of our enemies, and may pass our time in rest and quietness. And here's where we get the beauty of what Cranmer did to the liturgy. is He started loading it up with affective language. Because being Augustinian, as someone pointed out last night, he's really interested in the way that the prayer book engages our affection. So he's going to be using affective and emotional language throughout the prayers that weren't in previous prayers like being defended from the fear of our enemies and passing our time in rest and quietness through not just Jesus Christ but I want to make it clear that it's actually through the merits of Jesus Christ because what's in debate in our century says Cranmer is who's doing the meriting of salvation here so you're getting this language of through the merits of Jesus Christ. Do you see how, in a sense, because of Cranmer's conviction about justification by faith alone, as these prayers are taken through the grid of translation, filtering out of them are works so that the clarification of prayer through the good news of Jesus is being added. Here's another one. Old prayer. Lord, we beseech thee to receive the prayers of thy holy heavenly people who follow thee. And grant that they perceive what things that they ought to do and also have power faithfully to fulfill the same. Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of not thy holy and heavenly people. I don't want to give any impression that somehow you're receiving our prayers because we ourselves on our own are holy and heavenly. So he takes those words out. Receive the prayers of thy people. And... We might follow thee, but I don't want this to be, I don't want this prayer to sound like the reason you're answering our prayers because we follow you. So I'm going to take that word out. And we are your people which call upon thee. In a sense, we're looking for you to provide what we don't have. So we're not your holy heavenly people right now, nor are we people that follow you. We are people who are just people that call upon you. Our hands are open. We don't have anything. We need everything. And grant that they may both perceive and know 
So a deeper kind of grabbing, and this is part of what Cranmer does as well, which is a kind of 16th century linguistic device of adding words when there was one word in Latin to kind of make it blossom by adding doublets or triplets. You find this all over the place in the Collects of Cranmer that you got these multiple words for what was one word in Latin. May both perceive and know what things they ought to do and also not just have power, but have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. He's filtering out all the works and making who does the action in my salvation and for my sake in my praying. It is God alone. Another one. Almighty and everlasting God, who dost exceed the merits and prayers of thy suppliants. So we bring something. I mean, God, you do plenty for us. You exceed the merits, but we've got something that we bring to the table. Pour down upon us thy mercy forgiving us those things whereof our conscience is afraid, etc., etc. Anytime merits is in a prayer, Cranmer's allergies go off because he's aware that once we start bringing our works to the table in how we approach God, it starts to make the gospel less clear and the change agent can't change us as easily. So, almighty and everlasting God, and you all might have heard this prayer because it's so beautiful. This is his original language which are always more ready to hear than we are to pray. I mean, hasn't the times when you've prayed that, haven't those been real moments of comfort for you? Because as John Newton said in one of his hymns, I would but cannot pray, though I endeavor oft, for Satan meets me when I try and frights my soul away. (laughs) I kind of botched the rhyming of that. Um... And the idea being, I actually struggle to pray. And here Cranmer kind of gives us a stark distinction between faith and works. God, you're actually even more ready to hear than I am to pray. Meaning your grace so far outpaces anything that I could ever bring to the table that actually my deficit is somehow enough for you to work with. And you're more want to give more than either we desire or deserve. Pour down upon us not just thy mercy, but the abundance of thy mercy. There were times in prayers when Cranmer felt the whole prayer totally inadequate. And here's one of them. The prayer that kicks off Lent. You can imagine, if you think about Lent for a second, that Lent could be a a season in which Christians get very confused about what makes God love them. You catching my drift? Because Lent is often a season where we think, gosh, I'm going to get real serious about Jesus. I'm going to fast. I'm going to show him that uh, I'm good enough, smart enough, and he likes me. I'm going to exhibit to him my steadfastness and my commitment. And as a result, he's going to love me more. Even if we don't say it like that, that's how we internalize it and kind of operate in the middle of our Lenten fast. And the original prayer goes like this. God who didst purify thy church by the yearly observance of Lent. So how is the church purified? By the church observing Lent. In other words, as we fast, God uses our works to purify us. God, who didst purify the church by thy yearly observance of Lent, help your family, so kind of come alongside us as we strive toward abstinence and flawless good works. What a prayer. What pressure, right? Imagine praying this at the beginning of Lent and trying to live up to that. And Cranmer was like, I really can't work with that prayer at all. I'm pulling it off the table. I'm cutting it out. And listen to what he puts in its place. O Lord, which for our sake didst fast 40 days and 40 nights, give us grace to use such abstinence that our flesh being subdued to the Spirit We may ever obey thy godly motions, which is old English language for the works of the Spirit in us, the movement of the Spirit. We actually might just sort of yield to the Spirit working in us, in righteousness and true holiness, to thy honor and glory. Look at the focus. All of a sudden, our works have been filtered out of Lent. And the focus of Lent is not on our fasting, but on Christ's fasting. And as a result of fixing our eyes on the pure good news that Christ fasted for every broken fast you ever participated in. Christ did what we couldn't do. That somehow fixing our gaze there 
we can, quote, use such abstinence in sense, be filled with the gospel of Christ's work on our behalf, that maybe we just might be able to, to fast. And what is fasting anyway but putting ourselves in a position of weakness, getting really hangry so that basically all our sins boil to the surface and we're able to say not how strong I am for the Lord, but man, when I fast, actually what's being exposed is not my spiritual strength, but my weakness. That's what a good fast does, is expose that precisely so that we run to the one who didst for us fast 40 days and 40 nights. So what I want to say is that all throughout the prayer book, Cranmer was doing this kind of filtering work, and the collects were a great place where we see this really, really clearly, and this is precisely because it is the gospel that he wants to make clear. He wants this change agent to be present and to be moving and to work in us. I now want to maybe just uh, give you one other way of looking at the prayer book real quick, and it's just prayer book stats. So look in your handout on page one. Uh, The first page is page zero, so you have to turn to page two for it to be page one. I'm just trying to keep you on your toes. It's early in the morning. It's a little zen. Page one equals page two, all right? Think about it. It's deep. Some fun prayer book stats, just so that you can see a different angle through which Cranmer wanted to make the gospel clear. In the Roman Mass, in Holy Communion, the word uh, heart and its cognates were used a total of about seven times. And by the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer front ends the word heart about 28 times. All that to say, Cranmer's really interested, as we talked about, about heart change, right? We talked about how the Reformation understanding as they read the scriptures was that change happens from the inside out. And pound for pound, if you were someone who would pray in Latin, the Roman Mass, and then suddenly pray in English, the English prayer book of 1552, you would hear how much more often heart and your heart is being addressed. Similarly, in morning prayer, there's an uptick, even from the first prayer book to the second. So Cranmer's got an agenda. He really is, is interested in how the liturgy engages your heart, which is funny, isn't it? Because liturgical worshipers are often um, criticized for being rather heartless in the way that we worship, or for it to be all kind of exterior ritual. Cranmer's goal with the gospel was always the attack upon and the transplant of the heart. Another fun little set of stats are that in the 1552 prayer book, there's a major uptick in the use of the word mercy and its cognates. The Roman Mass uses mercy and its cognates 13 times, but we find in communion of the 1552 Book of Common Prayer, it's basically tripled. The amount of times you're going to hear mercy throughout the liturgy. This is a liturgical scholar named Geoffrey Cumming who put me on to this when he observed that mercy and its cognates appear a good more deal than the Latin warrants in Cranmer's liturgy. And it appeared all uh, those, those many times. And the goal was, the thought process was, hopefully, the more times you hear that God is actually merciful unto you, the more you're going to recognize that all those things that you're still hiding from him, he's big enough to treat and big enough to Uh, show his grace to and give you love for. All right. Now I want to go on to some other notes that I've lost real quick. Hang tight with me for a second. There they are. If you turn to your handout to page one, which is page two, Zen, I want to transition to looking at the Holy Communion liturgy in particular. And this is going to be really fun for me, Um, and for you, hopefully. Look under that that, uh, heading called The Ruts of Righteousness to this quote of Thomas Cranmer, which I love. His objective, or his thought of what's happening to you as you come to the table every week. Our Savior Christ hath not only set forth, forth these things most plainly in his holy word, these things being the gospel that we may hear them with our ears, but he is also ordained one visible sacrament of spiritual nourishment in bread and wine to the intent that as much as is possible for man, 
we may see Christ with our eyes, smell him at our nose, taste him with our mouths, grope him with our hands, and perceive him with all our senses. For as the word of God preached, putteth Christ into our ears, so likewise these elements of bread and wine, joined to God's word, do after a sacramental manner put Christ into our eyes, mouths, hands, and all our senses. Isn't that beautiful? That one of the things that was after was with this liturgy, the hope was that you would, quote, hear the gospel, not only with your ears, but you would be able to hear the gospel with your eyes, hear the gospel with your hands, hear the gospel with your nose, hear the gospel with your mouth. And I know I'm mixing the the sensory metaphor, right? But that's the point. Because what Paul said in Romans 10 was that faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But what the reformers are pointing out is that the word of Christ, this gospel, God is beneficent enough. God is benevolent enough that he would give it to us not only in our literal ears, but in the ears of every other sense as well. So that as we come to the table, that same clarified gospel of I love you, not for your sake, but, what, but for what Christ has done, is given to me as I smell, taste, touch, grope the, the bread and the wine, and that somehow Christ is united to me in that way. The reason this passage is called uh, the ruts of righteousness is because I was turned on to a phrase, uh, that phrase, when I heard a preacher expositing Psalm 23. Psalm 23 was the first passage of scripture I memorized as a kindergartner. Our kindergarten teacher in our school made us memorize that, KJV. The, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. One person described these paths as ruts, meaning in the ancient Near East, Paths were worn because they were well-traveled, usually by animals and then often by human beings because they were often discovered as the best way to get from point A to point B. Part of the reason that those paths were successful was that as you traveled them, they eventually wore grooves into the ground. What Psalm 23 is saying is that he leads me in paths of righteousness. So here's the metaphor that I, I want to offer you for how you can think about the formative nature of the repetition of liturgy. So we sometimes ask, and kids often will come to us and say, why, why do I have to, we had this complaint in our church from one of our kids. It's like, Dad, I don't want to go to church. And he said, why? He said, I know what we're going to say already. Why do we have to say it again? He has not yet, the kid doesn't yet understand, nor does he necessarily need to, that what is being worn into his heart are the ruts of righteousness. And here's the kind of metaphoric payoff of this. When you travel a path regularly, the groove gets worn into the ground such that in times when there's fog or storm and you cannot see the path, because you've worn grooves into the ground, you can feel the path. I like to think of it this way. The liturgy is like a well-worn path of repentance in the gospel so that when you're just sort of out there going about your life, in the ruts of the world, in the, in the difficulties of the world, and the, the path of following Jesus and repenting before the Lord is a little bit more difficult to see because of suffering, because of sin, or because of our three enemies that we renounce in baptism, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Whatever is creating that fog that is making life difficult or uncertain, because you've worn those grooves in the ground, week after week, saying the same thing in the liturgy, in a sense, the liturgy kind of comes back to you as a pattern of life. So that even if I can't see the way forward ahead of me, my feet feel the edges of those ruts. And I'm able to, in a sense, blindly stay in the path of God because those ruts have been worn so well. Even in the dark night of the soul. I have found this so many times. I don't know if you have. If you've been praying these prayers for a long time or praying scripture for a long time, that when your faith is tried for various reasons... Haven't you found that the Holy Spirit experientially will bring those prayers back to you where you need it and when you need it? If 
the project of the Book of Common Prayer and its liturgy was to drive the shape of repentance and the gospel into your bones. What happens over time, sometimes whether you know it or not, when you engage the liturgy as best as you can with whatever heart you can muster that Sunday, is Monday through Saturday, when you're experiencing that dark night of the soul, God is keeping you on the path of that gospel that can sometimes be hard to find, such that you might find yourself instinctually, say you fall into some kind of besetting sin. Instead of maybe trying to muster up enough strength to say, God, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going <clears> to <throat> do better next time, and let me show you this program of life I'm going to enter so that I don't fall into this yet again. Instead of falling into that maybe more works-based way of approaching God in that sinful and broken moment, because of the liturgy, <laughs> at the moment of, of the transgression, either metaphorically or literally, you fall to your knees. Almighty and everlasting God. And you begin to confess your sin. Most merciful God, I confess to you I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what I've done, by what I've left undone. I haven't loved you with my whole heart. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. And then what happens next? Oftentimes, almost like a Pavlovian reaction to that, that uh, confession is hearing the words of forgiveness and absolution that come to you from the minister so often on Sunday. And what, what has happened in that moment of sin is that you have, because of the well-worn path of, of repentance, week in and week out in the, on the, in the Sunday service, you found those prayers coming to you and re-giving you that very gospel pattern that has the power to grow you and shape you in repentance. I want to talk about repentance for a little bit before we break. And then after the next break, we'll actually walk through the Holy Communion liturgy together and observe some things about these, these patterns and structures. People talk about the sort of lightning rod moment of the Reformation being in 1517 when Martin Luther goes to that door of the Wittenberg church and nails his 95 theses to that door and probably in, in churches... Uh, in, in Reformation-oriented churches, when kids dress up for Halloween and they, they're, they're a pastor as a kid who dress up, dresses up for Halloween, they're dressing up their kids as Luther, you know, with a, a hammer and, and they're just nailing um, paper on everybody's door and getting candy or something like that. Because it's a great moment in the history of the Reformation. We talk about the 95 Theses a lot. Does anyone know what they say? Has anyone ever read them? Nick does. I, uh, does anyone happen to know what the first thesis of the 95 theses are? Nick, tell us. Does anybody else know? I mean, I might not get the exact word, uh -huh. but it's something like the entire <clears throat> Christian life. Yes, yes. Uh, and I won't get it exactly right either, but it's basically this line. When our Lord said repent, he willed that all of life should be repentance. In other words, the Christian life is nothing more and nothing less than continually confessing and being renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That from first to last, my growth is incumbent upon me staying in that spot where I began with the Spirit. Now I'm using language of Paul from Galatians 3, where he accused the Galatians of, you, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Having begun by the Spirit, do you now fall back into works of the law? Do you hear? You've mingled the filter. You began by the Spirit who said God loves you apart from your works, and you've moved on as though you need to start working really hard for Jesus, for Jesus to love you. And I'm telling you that repentance is not just one and done at the beginning of your Christian walk. It characterizes your entire faith and life. Every day, you're doing what the liturgy does. Every day you're confessing and hearing the good news. Every day you're, in a sense, praying the prayer of humble access on your knees and then receiving the gift of Jesus in bread and wine in your daily life. And that's the sum total of what the Christian life is. And then through that process, the Lord works good works which he's prepared in advance for you to do. That's the nature of it. And the hallmark of the Reformation was that particular insight. Thesis number one, when the, our Lord said repent, he willed that all of life be repentance. So before we go to break, the final thing I want to observe is the way this filter worked structurally. This gets a little technical, but turn with me to the handout. 
with the page number two, which is page three, handout page two, Cranmer's alteration of the structure of communion. This is the kinds of things, the order of events for the way communion worked in the Mass. Sarum is a Latin word for Salisbury, or that town in England from which this liturgy came, which was the predominant. There were lots of different communion liturgies that were being used based on regions in England. There was a Hereford liturgy, a York liturgy, a Salisbury liturgy. The Salisbury liturgy was the one that tended to be used in the largest parts of England. So it tended to be the one that Cranmer referenced as he translated things and transposed things into English and to the gospel. So we're setting the Sarum Mass's Holy Communion liturgy side by side with what Cranmer did in 1552. And if you just sort of take a moment to observe the kinds of things that he's taking out and the things that he's shifting around, you're starting to notice something. There's a lot of things going on. And I would even say what you see on the right is probably, is definitely, not probably, a little different from the way communion is celebrated now uh, in the 2019 prayer book or even the 1979 prayer book. But here we're just trying to look at the way Cranmer filtered this before we go into maximizing uh, our current liturgies. Exegetes like... um, Ashley Knoll, who's one of the world's top Cranmer scholar, will want to point out this one detail. Look halfway down at the... And I, I recognize that some of this language here may not be familiar. You're like, I don't, I don't quite know what I'm looking at when I see the word anamnesis. Is that a skin disease or what's going on there, you know? Um, we can... That's for another time. But what I want to point out is actually just what's, what do you experience if some of these things are taken out? The institution narrative is that quotation from Corinthians when you hear in the service, for on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. That's the institution narrative because that's where Christ instituted the Lord's Supper. But notice what happens next after the institution narrative. Nothing. (laughs) Once the institution narrative is given, the only thing left to do is simply to receive Jesus. In other words, what's the experiential payout of hearing the institution narrative with no further prayers but simply receiving communion? When you hear Jesus say, this is me given for you, what's left to do on your side of things? Receive it. Do you see what Cranmer's doing ritualistically and experientially for the believer? I don't want to give you any sense that after Jesus says, I give myself to you, you have to pray yourself up to be worthy of this. I don't want to give you any sense that you need to earn anything. I just want you to come, and when I say, I am for you and I give myself to you, okay, I'll take you. And so experientially... Actually, after the institution narrative, Cranmer doesn't even put an amen there. It's as if the prayer doesn't end and the reception of communion is an extension of of Christ's prayer over you and giving himself to you. You actually don't get an amen until the end of the post-communion prayer because in in Cranmer's mind, this, this whole thing is one act. When Christ says, I give myself to you and you receive him, it's this one act of union where the only thing for you to do is hang yourself on the promise that what I've given to you is actually good enough for you. So, this is me for you. Come and get it. You know, there's nothing left to do but receive. And so you see how, you know how we looked at the collects earlier and we saw that at, at the level of language, Cranmer was exercising a filter. That's one example of how in the communion liturgy, Cranmer also saw that this whole works thing actually functions at the level of of structures of liturgy. You see what I'm saying? In this liturgy, Cranmer was concerned that when Jesus gives himself to us, if we're praying a bunch and then receiving Jesus, what might sneak in there is a kind of formational understanding 
that somehow my reception of Jesus is incumbent upon all the things that I do for God, all these prayers that are being prayed before I come to receive. And I want to filter that out to make no mistake that the reason Christ gives himself to you, justification, is apart from your works, apart from anything you do. And why is that of value? Because that gives you the clear gospel that God loves you because he loves you because he loves you. That is the kind of repentance rut of righteousness that Cranmer is wanting you to feel and walk as you approach God at the table every week in communion. And so you see him doing this technically in all sorts of ways in all the different liturgies, whether morning prayer, whether evening prayer, or even here in Holy Communion and the other parts of the liturgy. You see him rearranging things. In the 20th century, liturgical scholars really didn't like Cranmer all that much. And they looked back on his editorial work and said he was kind of brutish and a little bit um, careless in the way that he just took the Roman liturgy and diced it up to shreds. And his communion service is, uh, is, is rather odd, you know. They, but what they didn't understand was he had a deeper agenda than simply faithfully transmitting what the liturgies of the past were. His conviction from the scriptures is that God's deeper agenda was to give the people Jesus. His deeper conviction was that the gospel needed to be clarified and filtered out from that was all the works that muddied up who does the loving and the giving and who does the receiving. I want to make that clear, Cranmer said. And so he goes through this kind of surgical work to give us a liturgy that is full both in content and structure with the good news of Jesus. That's going to be a good place to stop. Um, I might entertain just any questions that you have before we actually walk through uh, the communion liturgy, or you break and then we walk through the communion liturgy at 11. Questions? Yes. Uh, I'll repeat the question. How does what I just said play into the regulation that we must be baptized before we receive communion. I would just describe it like this. Baptism is an initiatory rite into the faith. It's sort of like the, the, the marker that marks us formally as a Christian. And in a sense, communion, if you want to put it this way, which I think is a beautiful way to put it, is the renewal of our baptism. So the baptism is a place that gives us the gospel— and so is communion. I wouldn't put that sort of therefore in a category of I need some, something before approaching the table as a work. It's actually another place where I'm given the gospel. That was, that was sort of Cranmer's view of what sacraments were, were rendezvous points where God gives us the good news of Jesus. So that's what I might say in brief. Good question. Yes. Yeah, I, that's a good point. Um, I'll go to Cranmer real quick and just say I think the reason Cranmer did that was simply to <clears throat> Cranmer didn't want anything that we were offering to God in prayer to be prior to God offering himself to us in Jesus. So even the Lord's Prayer, he wanted to be very clear, we're able to pray and offer ourselves, which is the prayer of self-oblation. Here we offer and present ourselves to you, our souls, our bodies. He wanted that to fall after communion as a response to grace, not a way of earning it. And even the post-communion prayer, even praise the Gloria he shockingly moved after communion because he wanted everything to flow from God having given himself to us. That said, what's my opinion about the Lord's Prayer before receiving? I don't think it's bad. In fact, there's something helpful about us making the theological connection between the daily bread of our normal food. Actually, you heard it in Nick's prayer last night before we had Chick-fil-A. Nick was reminding us that, in a sense, it's kind of a sacramental thing we do, small s sacramental thing we do when a church eats a meal together because we're sort of reminded of the way in which God's daily bread is a part, is a part of his, his broader provision for us of Christ at the table. And God's table is, in a sense, the microcosm of the way that God provides, for, provides all our food for us. So, that said, I, there, there is a, certainly a beautiful way in which we can approach the table by saying, Our Father who art in heaven beforehand. But yeah, it's a good question. So my opinion is, I, I think that's the reason Cranmer put it later, was to really clarify that gospel. 
I think there are ways to be faithful to the gospel and pray that prayer beforehand. Yeah. Yes. Ah. I think your question is, when we are engaging in rituals, postures, and movements in worship, how do we not conceive of those things as works in and of themselves? Maybe you're asking outside in, inside out type question. How do we view that our practices um, in themselves are not the things that are forming us, but the gospel itself? I'll answer it like this. All our exterior practices that we do, insofar as they participate in the narrative of repentance in our lives, form and shape us for the good in the gospel. So I, I don't think that we'd want to say that because of this, all worship should be purely, quote, purely spiritual and not physical. But it is that all our physical, physicality and rituals should contribute to our apprehension of what we're doing in the gospel. And you see this in Cranmer. Cranmer's not against ritual. Cranmer's not against postures and movements. But he's very much trying to align those things with a holistic apprehension of what we're really trying to do in a worship service, which is to engage the pattern of repentance. So insofar as a ritual like bowing can help me apprehend what sort of part of the journey of repentance I'm in, I'm all for it, Cranmer would say. Which is why there was a debate in 1552 at the time about whether one should bow at communion or receive it on your knees versus receive it standing. And actually there was a rubric that was added called the Black Rubric of 1552 added by John Knox in order to um, demand that the English people not bow at communion because one of the things going on back then, which is probably not present to us now, was a strong sense in which the, um, the bread and the wine themselves, because they were transubstantiated into the body of Christ, Jesus was substantially there before you. And the bread and wine are no longer bread and wine. They're actually Jesus. And therefore, I need to worship him. The reformers were concerned that that worship took your eye off the gospel ball and you became more concerned with daintily handling and respectfully honoring and adoring the elements than you did with the Jesus that those elements were trying to give you and the good news that the act of communion was trying to offer you. So that ritual of bowing had become tainted because it actually led you away from receiving Jesus through repentance and thinking that my main act during communion should be to worship and adore Jesus as present before me. And the reformer said, no, I don't want this ritual of bowing to confuse that clarity of the gospel that what I'm, my main act in communion is to receive the Jesus who gives himself to me even while I was yet a sinner, Right? They want that to be clarified. And so they remove bowing from that location precisely because it doesn't aid in the apprehension of the gospel. So to summarize, rituals and or actions are only as good formatively as they guide me in the pattern of the gospel would be maybe the answer that Cranmer might give to that question. Other questions? I saw something else. No. <clears throat> there is a, in a sense, when we participate in the liturgy and we attempt to give ourselves to it, because of just human nature, there can be a, there, there can be a deeper apprehension. The person who checks out and blindly goes to the liturgy versus the person who's attempting to kind of give their heart and soul and body to it, there's going to be a different level of apprehension to that. And while we wouldn't say that somehow that... Um, makes God love us more. What we can say is that that deeper participation wears that groove of repentance in such that repentance is a bit more in your system uh, as you do it. And I think what we could say is what we could say about any good work, which is I never want to say that that made God love me, but in hindsight, I do want to say if there was anything good in what I just did, the Holy Spirit did that. So what I always think about um, the way our posture as Christians are towards our good works is that they're sort of hindsight observations of a good work rather than 
uh, a present recognition. What I'm doing so great, God must love me. Rather, it's something, oh, today, you know, I recall this previous instance where God did something. Look at what the Holy Spirit did today. Which is why the language of the prayer book is, do such good works as God has prepared for us in advance to walk in. In this schema, a good work isn't something we do as much as it is we, we go out and, and kind of open up like a present. You could sort of think of your home. You wake up at the beginning of the day and God has prepared a bunch of gifts for you to open outside them. Those gifts are good works. So you go and you open your door and you see a tree over there. There's a, a gift to be opened. You unpack that and that's the good work. He's prepared. He's done it. He's given it to you. And that's the kind of freedom of a Christian life who, because they're totally supplied in Jesus, can give themselves away uh, in love of God and love of neighbor. But yeah, I'd construe of it more in that way. It's not that we want to check out, but it's that we recognize, especially in hindsight, if there was anything good and formative about my participation in worship that day, it was the result of the Holy Spirit zeroing me in, holding me fast, tethering me to his word, those sorts of things. Yes, I love it. Yeah, and that's a beautiful, different way we can think about uh, the ruts of righteousness is over time with the body of Christ through time as having also faithfully worn those things that we now can walk in. That, Cranmer would say, ever need reforming because there's nothing that hasn't over the continuance of time been practiced that tends to get corrupted, but nevertheless are faithful ruts for us to walk in. So, yes. That's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, the question he's asking is, is there something to this connection between justification and gospel stuff and the obsession Cranmer seems to have with inserting the Lord's Prayer everywhere in these older prayer books? Because you're right. If you pray, um, if, you, if you're engaging some of those liturgies, the Lord's Prayer seems to be multiple times in one worship service, right? Um, I, it's a dangling question that I have. I do tend to think one of the things that I try to argue in the book is part of the reason Cranmer is Bibleizing the liturgy. In other words, is making the liturgy not only conform to the doctrine of the Bible, but actually be the words of Scripture. Is he wants to take even worship that we do out of our hands as a work that we give to God. So he gives us God's words to give to God. In a sense, we take out our own additions of works and so I do wonder if that's at play in the amount of time he gives us the quintessential prayer that our Lord gave us to teach us how to pray. And in a sense, therefore, because all of worship is prayer, in a way the Lord's Prayer is kind of like the calling card of a theology of worship. Perhaps Cranmer's just wanting to double down on everything that worship is by giving us that biblical center for worship that is the Lord's Prayer. So, I think so, can't prove it. 